Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to The Book Pod with Corrie Perkin, the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boona Wurrung Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. everyone, welcome to the book pod, Corrie Perkin with you again. And my guest this week is Victorian writer, Eliza Henry Jones, an immensely talented wordsmith, whose fifth novel, Sultan's Skin, has just been published. This contemporary family drama with its beautiful characters, its strong Gothic feel, and a windswept Scottish island setting is one of the most outstanding novels I've read this year, and I am thrilled to note it has already attracted positive reviewer praise. More importantly, perhaps, readers love Eliza's story of the Manigan family, and they're recommending it to their friends. We must never underestimate the power of word of mouth. Eliza lives on a flower farm in the Yarra Valley, just northeast of Melbourne. Her first novel, In the Quiet, was published in 2015 when Eliza was 25, and it is a beautiful story of grief and showed an immense maturity for somebody of that age. Her other books are Ache, which was published in 2017, and two young adult novels, P is for Pearl and How to Grow a Family Tree, which came out in 2020. And Eliza has been listed for some important local literary awards, including the ABIA Awards, the New South Wales Premiers, and the Readings Prize for New Fiction. I feel certain Eliza is on the cusp of reaching the shortlister and winner's circle with her writing, and perhaps even her new novel, Salt and Skin, may be that first step. It is a remarkable accomplishment, this book. Eliza, congratulations on Salt and Skin, and welcome to the book pot. Thank you so much for having me, Corrie. Great to have you. Eliza, before we dis- discuss Salt and Skin, I wonder where you see your writing career now. Five books along, plus a vast body of essays and magazine stories and other work that you've done. Are you still learning every day? Absolutely. And I think when I started out, I had this idea that writing a book was something that you could learn and master and I found that every single book is just entirely its own beast and the creative process feels as in a lot of ways as kind of mysterious as unknowable as it did with the first book I wrote so in a way it's a bit it's a bit frustrating I think because you do I'd love to sort of have more of a sense of 
knowing what I'm doing with my work. But on the other hand, there's a sort of magic in in that amount of unknown. Well, I, I can understand that. I remember interviewing once Graham Simpson of The Rosie Project, and he said writing is like everything, 10,000 hours of practice. And although I thought that was, it was, it shocked me, it was a rather interesting way to think about writing. I do agree that the more you write, the better you get. And also the more you read, the better your writing becomes. I feel with Salt and Skin, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I do feel like this is a, it's a different style of novel. It's like you've gone up another gear with this book. It really, it really propels me into a new and interesting space in writing, but there's such a sophistication about it. And I wonder whether you feel about it now or indeed felt about it as you were writing, that this was something different to your previous work. It feels hugely different to my previous work, I think. It's definitely the most challenging book that I've written. And there are a lot of times during the process of writing it where it just felt huge, like it felt like this huge project. And I wasn't sure how I was going to get to the finish line with it. And it felt big because it's of the the themes that I explore, which, which in some ways are similar to the themes that I explored in my earlier works, but in other ways, it's it's a completely new direction. And also the fact that it's narrated from several different characters' perspectives and the fact that it's set in Orkney and the fact that it does draw on a lot of magic and fantastical elements and real historical records. So it was a real departure for me in terms of process as well. But I think it's definitely the book that I'm most proud of. And this is this sounds terrible, but I think normally when I get to this point with a book, I am so sick of it that I'm ready to sort of put it, put it in a bin and set it on fire. I mean, I've just, you work on them so intensely and I don't have the best attention span. But Salt and Skin, I still feel quite engaged with. I I still have space in my head for it, which is a bit of a new experience. It sounds dreadful, doesn't it? But um, no, I can re- I can really <laughs> understand that. I often ask writers, at what point do those characters stop chattering to you, and it must drive you crazy because, of course, after all the months of editing and and editing again, and finally getting the copy on the shelves, you have to go and do writers' festivals and and podcasts like this one and talk about it again. But I can understand that this book must have life for you because the the characters, first of all, are so real to me in a somewhat interesting setting because you do go into, you do explore areas of unexplained phenomena and almost supernatural fairy-like behaviour. But the characters are so real. But you do leave us on a little bit of a point where the reader, to some extent, can make up their own mind about the ending. So that, of course, means the book has... Uh, longevity beyond the last page. It certainly has been going around and around in my mind since I finished it. Let's go back to the Orkney Islands, Eliza. That was a trip that you took some time ago was the inspiration for this story. Can you tell tell us how you, I, I'm presuming, of course, it was pre-COVID. So can you tell us about that trip and what happened to you there? Absolutely. Yeah, it was definitely pre-COVID. I was meant to be going back uh, in, I think it was 2020. I had funding to head back to do research on the Orkney Islands, but unfortunately that didn't end up happening. But I ended up going there because a friend, a beautiful writer friend called Sandra Lee Price sent me The Outrun by Amy Liptrop, which is this beautiful memoir looking at addiction and it's set on the Orkney Islands. And she sent it to me thinking that I'd really 
gel with the addiction side of things because that was my area of work before I started writing full time. And, and I loved that side of it, but I just became absolutely obsessed with the descriptions of the Orkneys and the community and the folklore and the animals and the landscape. And so I dragged my husband there in 2017 and I was feeling a bit burnt out and I'd just been working really intensively. So I didn't even take my laptop with me. I just was like, no, I'm not writing. I'm just going to go and just have a break, recharge. And we were there on the cusp of winter. So there weren't a lot of tourists because it is pretty wild out there. So just to give those who don't know where it is, it's on that kind of northern part of Scotland. It just, it's sort of Shetland and Orkneys. It's all that area, isn't it? Yeah. So it's a little collection of islands in the middle of the Atlantic and the North Sea. And it's in the Gulf Stream, which keeps the weather a little bit milder than it otherwise would be. But it's sort of up up near Norway and Iceland kind of thing. Like it's it's quite a quite a wild part of the world. And we did a tour of St Magnus Cathedral, which is this beautiful sandstone kirk in the centre of Kirkwall, which is the capital of Orkney. And this kirk was it's very very old. They began construction on it in 1137, and that was back when the Orkneys were under Norse rule. And we did this tour and it's, they've got uh, sort of big slabs of carved stone that they use to mark graves up, up against all the walls and all these little tiny little um, narrow stone-hewn staircases and all these multiple levels. And it's, it's this, this real maze of a place. And I presume it, was, it started life as a sort of a pagan sanctuary for pagan worship or something, was it? I can't actually remember off the top of my head, but it, at that time it would have been, yeah, it would have been very, very different to what it is today. I'm going to have to look that up when we finish talking. What really struck me is this space in the church called Mark's Hole. And basically it's this little hole really, really high up. You can only access it by a ladder. And the bottom of it is shaped like a champagne. The floor of it's shaped like a champagne bottle so that the people that are incarcerated in this little tiny space couldn't even rest. They couldn't sleep. They couldn't relax and they used it for incarcerating a broad range of criminals, but it was mostly, it's, it's very heavily associated with incarcerating those that were accused of witchcraft during the witch hunts in Orkney. And I'd never really given much thought to the witch hunts. I'd, you know, it was sort of something I was very peripherally aware of, but something about seeing this little tiny space where they would have been imprisoned in between being tortured and you know 90 percent of the women uh, people accused of witchcraft on the Orkney Islands are women which is even higher rates than the rest of the UK and the rest of Europe as well they were kept there and then basically they were marched about oh, a mile mile and a half up a hill to a place called Galawa and they were made to climb a double hangman's ladder and they were hanged and that hangman's ladder is also in this kirk and Something about seeing the dungeon and seeing the hangman's ladder and being in this church that's, you know, coming up to a thousand years old, it just really got under my skin and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And uh, this is this is a little bit, it's not very empirical, but I didn't think that I had any connection to the Highlands or Orkney, but my mum gave me an ancestry test, you know, the DNA test, you do like the saliva swab and send it off. And 50% of my DNA came back as being associated with the Highlands and Orkney. No. <laughs> Which was a bit, a bit of a wow. fun thing. So your connection was really a physical response as much as an emotional one, I'm imagining. 
And how creepy too to be there, or interesting, to be there with no tourists and just really kind of exploring pretty much just the two of you. How amazing. It's pretty special. And, you know, there's standing stones and there's Scarabray, which is this, I think it's about five and a half thousand year old settlement ruins on the beach. And yeah, we were, we were the only people at all of those places, which was pretty, pretty special. So this story is, it involves a contemporary Australian family, Luda, who is a photographer and her two teenage children, Min and Darcy, and they, for a tragedy has occurred and they move to this part of the world. They have a distant relative and Luda has a photojournalism assignment on the environment she is to complete, but they are very much a family stuck, I feel, stuck in their connection with one another and life generally and with other people. And the story kind of unpicks all of that and and there's such an optimistic feel toward the end about people having come through a terrible time. But when you were in Orkney, did this idea of the Australian, Australians coming to this part of the world like you did, was that part of your story or was it more just a bit like Hannah Kent when she first heard the story of Agnes and then saw the bleak landscape and the bleak landscape was the thing that really led her with burial rights into that story. How did it kind of work? What, what spoke to you as you were thinking about what you could do with this landscape? One of the things I think I found most striking was the way that climate change was impacting the Orkney Islands. And I live on a little farm in the Yarra Valley on Wurundjeri land and we grow a lot of our own food and I run a flower farm with my cousin and it's it's a little almost like a little microcosm of climate change and where you become acutely aware of it when you're growing things seasonally and you're managing orchards and plants and all of that sort of thing. So I think I was very struck by the contrast between the two landscapes when I was in Orkney and also by the way that despite the elemental differences, both communities in Australia and communities in Orkney are both at the forefront of climate change events. And, you know, there are islands in Orkney that are being split in two by king tides and rising sea levels and erosion. You know, a lot of the heritage sites like Scarabray are at risk of being completely swept away by the sea. And I was very struck by that. And there's quite a bit of research, scientific research, that sort of compares sites in Australia alongside sites in Orkney because they are both <clears throat> very vulnerable. And um, so there was that element of it. And there was also the element that I felt like I couldn't write about Orkney from a local's perspective. I felt like even though I've completely imagined the community, it just felt, it felt, it felt too difficult for me. So it gave me a way to explore it in a way that felt more true to myself and what I brought to it in terms of the writer and my own experiences. And I think it kind of helped lend a bit of a dreamy quality to the way that the landscape of the islands is described that might not have been there if I had attempted to write it purely from a local islander's perspective. There's so much great fiction, so many great stories around the outsider or the outsiders who move to a community and, and the many struggles and unexpected joys they find. Congratulations on that one because we're completely with Luda and the children trying to fit in and, and the complications that come with that. Tell me about, we'll go back to Salt and Skin in a minute, but tell me about 
the writing bug and when it kind of bit you. I can see as as we're interviewing via Zoom today, I can see behind you a vast bookshelf. Were you a keen reader as a child and and how did how did writing and actually making writing a profession that you wanted to do every day? How did it come about? Well, I have to admit I'm the daughter of a children's librarian, <laughs> which um, definitely set me up on the path. So I, I think I, I started reading when I was two. So I was reading before I could walk. <laughs> I used to just sit like a little potato on the floor and read my books and, you know, be carried around in between. But I think, I think for me, writing, I was, I've always been drawn to writing long, longer, longer works, novels. It took me many more years to work out how to write short stories effectively. That's a process that's a lot less intuitive. But I was always drawn to novels and I was always drawn to the way that it enabled me to explore very big issues that were challenging me and confronting me, particularly as a young person, that I didn't have the means to explore more personally. So I've never been someone that's been been into keeping journals or diaries of my own experiences but writing these long form fiction pieces, it gave me this, I just, I felt this freedom to explore things like violence and parental mental illness and what it means to try and fit in and belong and have ambition, all, all those sorts of things. So I think it was just this very cathartic thing for me. And my mum, you know, I'd just be you know, hunched over. I type with two fingers really aggressively. So I'd just be like hunched over the, the desktop computer at home and typing away with my two fingers and my mum would sort of come in and I'd quickly, you know, turn the screen off and look really furtive. So I, I don't know what she thought I was up to. Where did you grow up? Where was all of this happening? Oh, I grew up in my grandma's house with my mum in Ormond. So sort of Bayside. And then I lived between Ormond and Malvern. And so I've incrementally kind of clawed my way out to uh, Sylvan, where we are now in our farm. So I used to stay home from school. I missed about a third of high school because I was very anxious and I would just write stories. And I finished my first very terrible novel-length manuscript when I was 14 and I printed it and I just like presented it to my mother and her relief was palpable. <laughs> now she knows what you've been doing on your computer. <laughs> and I just I just kept writing. So I, I produced a novel a year from when I was 14 to 24 you know, being a writer wasn't really a job that people had. So I went down the psychology route and I just sort of wrote on the side and loved it and did a few units of it at university, kind of crammed them in around the psych. And I just read, like I've always just read and read and read and read. I've always read very broadly, which I think is something that perhaps isn't talked about as much as it should be. I think there's, there's so much value in just reading across as many genres as you can. Do you have a favourite? Do you have one that you come, you come back to as comfort food? I really enjoy reading fantasy, so I do read fantasy. I love books that have strong characters and do things a bit unusually with forms, so I've absolutely been obsessed with George Saunders' Lincoln in the Bardo for the last couple of years. What else have I been obsessed with lately? Oh, Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell I absolutely love, but... Anyway, I just, yeah, reading, reading, reading. And I sent a book to a manuscript to an agent when I think was 22 and she accepted it. And everyone talks about how difficult it is to get an agent. So I sort of thought, well, this is it. I'm going to get published and did the rounds and everything moved so glacially in publishing that I finished my next manuscript by the time we heard back from everyone. And the consensus was 
the writing's lovely, but we can't sell this. There's no hook. There's nothing marketable about it. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I've got my next one. And my agent at the time said that, you know, it was also a very quiet story and chances are it would have the same response, but she sent it out and I busily started working on my next one. And that book ended up being my debut. So it went out to 10 publishers and I ended up with five offers. And it just really hit home to me how subjective it is. And, you know, it's, it's so difficult to gauge how your book's going to be received or if people it's going to resonate with people or if people are going to enjoy it or you know, engage with it. You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. Did you have, did you have a fear of failure? We, we interviewed on The Book Pod a couple of episodes ago Robert Lukens, also a Victorian writer like yourself, and he has dozens of novels, completed novels, in a, in a bottom drawer in his study because for so many years he was just fearful of sending them out, being rejected, but... I think also kind of losing control a bit of the the process as well. He was absolutely fearful. So, of course, when he finally summoned up the courage to send one to a publisher. I think part of how I've managed that, because it is, it's a very real visceral terror. And I, I think particularly when you think about the fact that writers are generally quite solitary creatures who are happy just being by themselves for hours on end, typing as I do with my two little fingers. I think for me, I've managed that by having things outside of writing that I've been able to throw myself into emotionally and really focus on and use as a bit of a life raft when, you know, the writing side of things feels really turbulent because there is so much uncertainty in it and that it is very anxiety inducing. And it's such a funny thing publishing a book because in in some ways when that book is printed and the editing process is finished you know the the story kind of dies a little bit in a way it becomes something that is static and isn't evolving anymore but conversely it also takes on this new multifaceted complex life where it begins to live in other people and other people have thoughts about it and they're you know immersing themselves in the world so it's that too is a bit of a funny process I mean, it is, it is horrifying when you think about it. <laughs> so you have, the, you have the flower farm, but are you writing full-time now, Eliza? Is that where you're at, five novels in? Yeah, so uh, I do some teaching and got the flower farm. I'm in the very, very final phase of my PhD in creative writing, which Salt and Skin formed the creative part of. And yeah, I just sort of do, I do freelancing. I judge short story awards. You just, it's quite, I think a lot of writers find that, you know, it's quite piecemeal, the work you end up doing, which I quite enjoy. I enjoy the variety of it. I would love to go back and do more of the psychology work at some stage. I do really love, love that, love that work. Well, there's a lot of psychology at play with your characters in Salt and Skin. And As I said earlier, it's a book about many issues, but I thought we might touch on the witchcraft element and that rather sinister yet alluring moment that you had in the Orkneys, just feeling that kind of weirdness and that history. I wondered whether you might read a little passage from the book, and I think you've chosen the prologue to Salt and Skin. Yes, It has been called the ghost house for as long as anyone can remember. It's set on a tidal island called Shawnee, which can be reached from Big Island by crossing damp sand at low tide. 
or picking a careful route across the causeway when the tide is high. Once the ghost house had had neighbours answering glows of candlelight through door and window gap, answering whistles of wind on stormy nights, answering sounds of life. Its neighbours are ruins now. The ghost house is alone. The roof is made of old slate and there are narrow beds pressed up against opposite walls in the small loft. There is the skin of a dead fur seal pushed into the rafters and long forgotten. Plovers and curlews, a spirit who calls in the voice of a gull, sometimes baleen whales sing at night, their bones stuck fast in the shallows of the bay. A trick of the light or an old curse or spell that makes the tidal island a particularly curious place. It is said that some folk, as soon as they step onto Shawnee, can see the luminous traces of scars across human skin, every injury a person has ever sustained to their flesh, every scratch and pimple and pox and burn illuminated by the pearly light. Someone with the sight can see the scars spun brightly across the skin of their children, strangers, enemies, their own skin too. In this way, all skin is the same on the tidal island, and all skin on the tidal island is utterly unique. Island witches are said to have met there on clear, still nights. But of course, that was years ago, centuries. People know more than they did back then. They do not believe in witches. Oh, and into that really comfortable, easy setting of the ghost house, you send the Manigan family. Well, that was very kind of you to do that, Eliza. Okay, so I was pretty terrified from the first page, but it is very evocative. And as you've mentioned, the book touches on in such beautiful ways, the environment and global warming, both in Australia and the Orkneys. You touch on generational trauma, you touch on unexplained natural phenomena, and also the suspicion of the outsider or the other, which the whole kind of witchcraft thing sort of sits in there as well. Discrimination and bullying is in there. And also most beautifully, the power of a community to help us heal. But at the heart of this book is a family in crisis for me anyway. And the story starts after a tragedy has occurred in Australia and Lita and the children, as I said earlier, move from Australia to Scotland. And because of your psychology background, you've trained in areas of grief and loss and trauma counseling and so on. How did you bring your learning and your experiences into this story and why? Because you could have actually just had a story that was about people moving to a, an area that's a bit spooky and made it very gothic and very ghost story, but you've got this this extraordinary kind of underbelly of, of trauma and grief underneath it. I think trauma and grief are just two things that I always seem to circle back to in my work. And there's that whole idea that writers will keep pressing on the bruise and just come back to these themes again and again in their work. And I think for me, that's definitely things around grief and trauma. And one of the main things that I set out to do with Salt and Skin was to write a narrative that prominently featured a trauma that is never actually verbalized by the character. And I think often in fiction, and I've definitely done this in my other work, you know, there's this sort of pattern where this backstory of trauma is sort of dangled early on in the piece. And, you, you know, you want to know what, what's happened to this character. Why are they behaving in this way? You know, what, what dastardly thing have they experienced? And you keep reading and there's this build up to this moment of catharsis and climax where they verbalise what they've been through to another character. And that is a reflection of some people's experiences of trauma. But in my experience, in the work I've done, in my own experience of trauma, 
often people don't have the words to describe what they've been through. And I think that that is still valid. And I really wanted to have this character never confront or pull into narrative this horrible thing that's happened to him, but to still be seen and embraced and supported by the other characters. And, you know, I think readers can definitely piece together what's happened to him. And the other thing I really wanted to explore in Salt and Skin is the way that traumatic memories aren't like other memories. They don't get encoded and stored in the same way. They exist very viscerally in our present in a way that other memories don't. They almost haunt our present. And, you know, traumatic flashbacks in people that are experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder or complex post-traumatic stress disorder, those flashbacks are like being literally thrown back into those moments. And people can't always even construct a narrative, even to themselves, about what they've been through from these fragments and these very visceral, unknowable fragments of of awfulness. And I wanted that to be part of the narrative as well. And I think that's true for their experiences of grief and trauma in the book. They often find that these moments just creep up on them. They're thrown back into narrow, you know, the place that they were before they came to Orkney, the country town. And I also wanted the grief to be explored in a way, again, that felt true to me and the work that I'd done in that, you know, grief isn't this always. I mean, for some people, I'm sure it is, but it isn't just this black hole that you go into and you're sad unrelentingly And then you come out the other end and you have processed your grief and everything is fine now and you carry on on your way. I wanted the grief to be this experience of peaks and troughs where people, you know, they have, you have moments where you're absolutely immobilized by the pain and the sudden realization over and over again that this person is gone and this is how the world looks now. But at the same time, there are still threads of levity and calmness and happiness sometimes you know it's yeah and also and also what you remind us in your book too is the as I said earlier the power of community to to heal the importance of even touch you know even a hug or even just sitting together and reading a book as two of the characters do often it's so important, isn't it? Words don't have to be spoken, but the but the love is there. It's exuding and the support is there. And no one's actually saying, oh, hi, I'm here with a casserole. So, <laughs> sorry, sorry for your loss. And is there anything I can do? It's much deeper than that. And I, I love the way that you've captured that. Tell us about the character Theo, known or, or described by village folk as a foundling. Uh, he's washed up on the beach years before the action takes place in salt and skin tell us about him so theo has washed up on the beach of this little island that i just described when i read out the prologue so he's washed up on shawnee and he's got webbing between his fingers and a lot of the locals think that he is a selkie and for those that might not know selkie folk tales selkies are seal people so when they're in water they look like a gray fur seal and then they come up onto land shed their skin and appear human on the shore and a lot of the selkie folk tales are around women coming up onto the beach shedding their skin and a man stealing that skin and trapping her into marriage and 
keeping house for him and having children and her just yearning for the seat. And I wanted to write a character into that space in a contemporary setting. And Theo is kind of in a weird position. In a way, it, it mirrors the Manigans. He is both embraced by the local community and seen as one of them, but he's also ostracised and othered and seen almost as this wild creature, um, which has heavily impacted how he's kind of grown and developed since he was found on the beach. And, you know, there's never, there's never really any um, definitive answer as to whether he is a Selkie or whether there's another explanation for how he ended up on the beach with no memory and web fingers. What do you think? I think he's a Selkie. <laughs> I definitely came at came at it as a Selkie. And I think for me, there is a lot of liminality in this book. There's a lot of magic woven in, but it exists right on the cusp of what could be real. And yeah, everything there for me is definitely magical. But um you know, that's the, I guess that's for readers to decide. And some people have been adamant about it being one way or the other, which I found really interesting. I had sort of set out to write it in a way that was a little bit obtuse. Well, I think, I think for me anyway, therein lies its power and beauty because you allow the reader, you kind of saying to the reader, listen, I know that you're sophisticated enough and imaginative enough to kind of work out what's happened here or or what you think the ending might be or where this person might have come from, you allow us to make the call. And just as I feel, for example, with some of the traumatic flashback, you get to, a, you get to a, the, the precipice or the edge and then you pull back from the storytelling, but we go over. We <laughs> go over into this abyss of sadness and grief, realising, of course, what's happened to the individuals and Oh, gosh, I love that. I, that is such a feature for me of this beautiful story. Toward the end of the novel, and I don't want to give anything away, but you have another big, big event at the end of the novel. And I wondered whether in your story writing, whether this big event had occurred to you before you set out on the journey, mapping it all out, or whether, in fact, it came to you just as you were settling in with the characters and the story and the environment? That's a really good question. I knew that there had to be an event somewhere around that part of the story and the shape of that event changed as I, as I edited and wrote. I, I write a lot. I write very fast and then I throw out a lot. I'm a pretty ruthless editor and I think with Salt and Skin, which is 105,000 words in its finished form, I threw out about 150,000 words. So that event did feel necessary. And I think it was earlier on, but I knew how it would end. I knew it. So the very final scene I wrote as part of a 4,000 word poem on my notes app when I was first trying to find my way into the story. And I knew that that event had to happen for that ending. But I think my, my, my writing process is quite fluid and I definitely find out what's going to happen as I, as I kind of write. I'd love to be a planner. One of my really good writing friends, Kylie Ladd, she, she is just, she is the epitome of a, of a planner and a plotter. You know, she, everything is planned out beautifully before she starts writing and her first drafts are just so polished and beautiful whereas my first drafts are just horrifying <laughs> but 
that's okay. It's horses and courses, isn't it? And getting back to Graham Simpson, the more we write, the better we write. So you've got to, everybody works in a different way. But yes, kill your darlings is not easy for anybody. <laughs> I can tell you after years of killing mine, you know, there are a lot of parts of stories that sh- I always feel should have been in there or <laughs> anyway, the world that, you know, that we'll all, there's a graveyard full of things that have been cast aside for the good of the completed story. So that's, it's so, it's very interesting to think how you might be writing. What is your writing process, your daily, are you quite rigid then and disciplined or Is it more when it comes to you, you just grab the laptop and away you go? My writing process has changed massively with Salt and Skin because just before I started writing it, I had my first child. So Salt and Skin is also kind of interesting in that it's so entwined with my experience of motherhood and rediscovering how to write and how to be a creative person when my world had just been absolutely turned upside down. And I used to write and my preference still is to write in just unbroken stretches. So when when I feel like the, you know, the story is particularly living and vivid to me, I just would like to sit down and just write for like 10 hours straight. But with a tiny human, <laughs> that's become very difficult. So I've had to learn strategies and ways to kind of dip in and out of the stories and work in smaller chunks, which I find a lot more difficult. Do you organise some childcare so you can have a stretch of time? I do. And I'm extremely lucky in that my mum, the aforementioned teacher librarian, actually lives on our farm in her own little house and she's retired. So Henry does spend a lot of time with her and she loves it and he loves it. And it's very wholesome and idyllic. But he's still, you know, he'll come up and, you know, he'll need to go down for a nap or, you know, he'll need a meal or he'll want to read a book with me. And, you know, it's just parenting, isn't it? So sometimes you just have to push through, I think, um, and you can edit it and fix it up later. We ask all our writers this, if you were on the desert island and, as we've said, reading other people's work is so important, whose books would you or which book would you take with you? I would probably, it would probably change. You know, if you asked me, you know, in a, in a month, I'd probably give you a different answer. But today I would be taking Ghost Wall by Sarah Moss with me, wow. which is an absolute masterpiece. She's a fabulous writer. Oh, she's incredible. And Ghost Wall is um, one of the texts I looked at in my PhD. So I've really pulled it apart and I still love it because I think sometimes when you really intensively focus on a text, you just kind it loses the magic a little bit. But I've just found myself more and more enchanted the more I delve into it. So, yes, I would be taking Ghost Wall by Sarah Moss with me. Well, Eliza, it's just been such a joy to meet you after all this time. And we wish you all the best with your PhD. I don't know how you're juggling everything that you do. That's pretty remarkable. You throw in the flower farm. <laughs> what a, but what a beautiful way to start the day, really, you know, walking around. I, I can just see a paddock of flowers. I'm sure it's all hard work, but it sounds wonderful. But I'm so delighted that you chatted with us today and we wish you every success with salt and skin and all your future writing. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. That was Eliza Henry-Jones, author of Salt and Skin, published by Ultimo Press and available at a good bookshop near you. (laughs) 
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.